BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. But every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens, and painting. Fluoride in the water, they spray our skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati might control the sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? They don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know. If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? In places least expected, unsolved mysteries lie waiting for their discoveries to be made. And today's guest makes his business writing about just that. From the haunted Italian countryside to the lost ruins strangled beneath Amazonian rainforests, Douglas Preston is somewhere in between Sherlock Holmes and Indiana Jones, author, adventurer, and investigator. He joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast for a conversation about his latest two books, The Lost Tomb and Other Real-Life Stories of Bones, Burials, and Murder, and his previous book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Douglas Preston. obviously of paramount importance to him. And it had carved in it in columns, these numbers. Naturally, people said, well, these are numbers that indicate where, you know, distances and directions that indicate where the lost city was. But after I found the journal and realized that 
The real discovery that he made was not of a lost city, but of a very rich placard of gold deposits. I realized, oh, what's on this, this staff are probably directions to the gold. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I actually got out the maps and, and found out where that valley was, where he was along the river. It was a tributary of the it was a tributary of a tributary of the Patuka River. And I know where it is. I mean, but you know, am I gonna tell anybody? No. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I am so excited to be here with my co-host, interim co-host. He's from his own podcast, but he's joining me as a co-host for this episode because we have a very, very special guest. That's Roman from the Rising from the Ashes co-hosting with our very, very, very special guest. Let me just reiterate, Douglas Preston. He's an author. He's an explorer. He is an, an adventurer in the in the old sense of the word. And I'm very excited to have him on the show today to talk about some of his journeys, some of his articles, and this latest book where you've collected some of your best articles that you've written over the past few years and sort of put them all together with some updates, you know, some footnotes at the end. But before we get to that, how are you today, sir? And tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm good. Thank you, uh, Mark and, and Roman, for having me on the show. I'm talking to you from Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I live. And uh, so glad to, glad to chat about the lost tomb. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you have so much information in this book. It's kind of, you know, designed in a way to fit certain categories. Have you always been interested in where true crime, mystery, and archaeology overlap, this kind of nexus point, if you will? I have. You know, I've always been sort of interested in dark stories. And there are a lot of dark stories in this book. I mean, there's cannibalism. There's serial killers, there's crime, fraud, murder, and archaeology and burials and mysteries, but with a few treasure, well, with a treasure hunter too thrown in. But I, I don't know why, but I've always been attracted to mysteries, dark stories, unsolved crimes, and the, in general, the darker side of human nature. And in my novels, you know, I write thrillers. That's also been an interest to sort of, but 
that drives bad people to do what they do. Mm. What is the what is the source of evil? Because it's easy to explain goodness. It's easy to explain why people are good, why they do the right thing. But it's very difficult sometimes to really understand evil and what evil people do and what, what motivates them, why they do what they do. That's a, a mystery. And it's a mystery that I think literature often deals with. I mean, more than goodness. I mean, the you know, people read Dante's Inferno much Many more people read Dante's Inferno than read the Paradiso. Because <laughs> heaven's <laughs> boring, but hell is really interesting. Right. That, can I, when I ask a question about diving into the mind of the insane or trying to put yourself into a character's position, you know, because you seem like a great guy, you know. I, I would think that you are, you are not one of these, uh, you know, one of these crazy people that goes out and does these crimes, but putting yourself into that character's position, you know, what have you found about putting yourself in the mind of these people when you're writing these characters and diving into the deeper parts of your own self? Well, it's, it's strange. You know, I wrote, write these thrillers, and some of them involve serial killers and so forth. And then in the book, The Lost Tomb, there's a story of a true serial killer, the monster of Florence. And when I covered that case and really delved into it, I realized I didn't really understand what a serial killer is all about. I, I hadn't really delved deep enough in my fiction. And that was really a shocking and very difficult experience. And I, I remember at one point interviewing the mother of, of, a, of a girl who'd been horribly murdered by this serial killer, the monster of Florence. And I you know, thought of myself as a tough journalist, you know, I mean, you know, I'd seen everything and I found myself in the middle of the interview starting to cry. I was so upset and, and at, at, at what it, it was just so terrible what this killer had done to this woman's life and the family. And, and uh, it's kind of, an, I tried to hide it, but, but I, I came out of that realizing, Jesus, I really have barely scratched the surface as a novelist on, on what, on the depths of human depravity. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's a dark thing. And I, I think it's better that people have an outlet in fiction to, to try to understand these things rather than a lack of it. Maybe, you know, that might lead to something. But when it comes to the lost tomb in the first chapter, you talk about a lost, a long lost friend that you made a grim discovery about. Did this contribute in some way to this interest to see, you know, finding out what happened to your friend, kind of tracking down this uh, mystery? Yeah, it did. The, uh, you know, I was, as I'm sure many people do, you're sitting in front of your computer, you're working, but you're at a, you're stuck, or you're just killing time, and you think, oh, I wonder what happened to that, to that kid I used to know in elementary school. And so I did that. This is some years ago. I, I, was, I had a best friend in elementary school from first through sixth grade, and then he moved away. He moved, I grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and then he moved to New Jersey, and we lost touch, and, I, and now I'm in my early 60s. 
and was wondering, I wonder what happened to that kid. I really, you know, he was a really close friend. So I started Googling around. His name was Peter Anderson. And I started Googling Peter Anderson in New Jersey and got like 60 or 70 hits because that's a very common name. And I was looking through and thinking, I wonder how I'm going to narrow this down. And then I remembered his middle name, Stark. So I Googled that and the story popped up out of the times of Trenton hmm. of this horrific murder um, of someone named Peter Stark Anderson had been murdered, bludgeoned to death in the most horrific way. His murderer was caught. The trial was really awful, the information that came out at the trial. And it was so shocking to me. To And I asked myself, what happened to this kid? I mean, Wellesley, Massachusetts, where I grew up, is one of the wealthiest suburbs in the country. I mean, you know, and here he was, according to this, these newspaper articles, living in a boarding house and, and indigent and and then somehow got bludgeoned to death horribly by this crazy guy. And then the crazy guy made all kinds of, told this weird, weird story. So I, I wrote that up. But I couldn't bring myself to delve into it deeper. I mean, what kind of, I, I guess I'm not much of a journalist when you look at it. <laughs> I just couldn't stand to find out what really happened. Yeah. And so I wrote the story up without, without an ending. And that's, that's where it remains. No, I don't blame you for stopping there, especially someone who's close to you. It must be real hard to, to fathom. Maybe easier when you're talking about people who passed away thousands and thousands of years ago, like the, the skeletons that were found in this lake. And as I was reading, I was expecting this to be, you know, something about pilgrims and my, my suspicions were sort of confirmed. But I was really surprised to find out that it wasn't just locals that were ending up in this lake. There were people from as far away as Europe that were ending up in this Himalayan mountain setting. Can you tell us about this, these, you know, this lake full of skeletons and you know, how you stumbled across this story and, and what you discovered when you did start looking into it? It's a very strange story. In the 1940s, uh, some explorers in the Himalayas, in the very northern part of Uttarakhand province in India, right just south of the Tibetan border, discovered this lake at over 16,000 feet, where there were something like 800 human skeletons in the lake. And many of them still had flesh on the bones. And now this is a, a weak trek from the nearest village. So how did all these people get up there and how did they die? It's a huge mystery. And there is a very difficult Hindu pilgrimage that passes by this lake. And so the idea was that these were Hindu pilgrims who had been caught in a terrible storm or something like that. But then a couple of years ago, some genetic researchers at Harvard, along with some in, their Indian colleagues, decided to do a genetic analysis of the bones to look at the DNA and find out where they came from. And so they took something like 100, a sample of 100 bones, they drilled out 
samples of bone dust, and they extracted the DNA, and they found that a large proportion of these bones, maybe a third, were not from India at all, but were cl most closely related to Greeks in the island of Crete, hmm. and they dated back to the 18th century. And so all of a sudden, this, this one mystery became a much bigger mystery, was what were hundreds of Greek Greeks from the 18th century doing at this lake at 16,500 feet in the Himalaya mountains? Um, and what killed them? And what happened? And that mystery has not been solved. It's still, I, I wrote this article up for the New Yorker magazine, and I fully expected at some point that someone would read it and say, oh, yes, I'm a historian, and I know that that uh, there were Greeks who went to India and were you know, converted to Hinduism and blah, blah, blah. Or, for example, I thought maybe these were Alex descendants of Alexander the Great's soldiers, because as some of us, as many people know from studying history, that Alexander the Great invaded India and... Some of you may have seen the movie The Man Who Would Be King, which sort of riffs on that, on Alexander's invasion of India. But when he left India, many of his soldiers remained behind. And so the idea was, well, maybe their descendants were... Maybe their descendants, that these skeletons were their you know, remains of their descendants. But no, the geneticists at Harvard proved that that, was, that could not be the case mm. um, for various very technical reasons and so it's still a mystery yeah yeah that's fascinating i hadn't thought about the alexander the great angle there but there's a great deal of uh cross-cultural connections in that world you know the you know the persian india greco-roman world we just recently had a guest chris bennett on the podcast and he writes about cannabis in its use in the ancient world and all of these cultures were trading things like cannabis, frankincense, myrrh. You know, India is full of cannabis these days. So who knows? Maybe something as maybe base level as a as a desire for a high drove people to go. You know, far distances, and then somewhere along the way they they converted to to Hinduism. I mean, there's a whole world in in this, or there's a whole ancient world that we're still wrapping our heads around as you know and that kind of brings up another story you wrote about which is the Kennewick man and I find this story fascinating because Roman and I we talk a lot about the prehistory of America the pre-Columbian history of America and this idea that Atlantis or another ancient civilization may be the true origin of these many related peoples, Native Americans, Aryans, Africans. There's growing evidence with the DNA showing that, you know, the the traditional lines of, oh, this type of person comes from here, this type of person comes from here. I really don't think that that applies anymore. We're starting to see that the ancient world was just as multicultural as the, the modern world. Would you agree with that? What were your findings with this Kennewick man? Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the idea that people stayed where they were for the most part and didn't move around a lot uh, is completely 
false. And the more we, the more researchers look into this and look into the DNA of, of the history of peoples and so forth, the more they realize that people, we are a nomadic species and we are ferociously nomadic and we will go anywhere. I mean, we go up to the far north, to the far south. We, we, it's just, we, that's just the way human beings are. And so the, the whole Kennewick Man mystery was, was really fascinating because they found this skeleton uh, uh, along the shores of the Columbia River, something like 10,000 years old, and it did not look Native American. It looked, in fact, like it might be European. And this stimulated a lot of theories and that are still current and that in fact, the New World might have been populated with Europeans 10, 20,000 years ago, as well as people migrating from Asia over the Bering Land Bridge. And the, the main proponent of this theory was a fellow named Dennis Stanford, who was the chair of the anthropology department at the Smithsonian, a very brilliant anthropologist who believed he studied the Clovis points that we find that are about 12,000, 13,000 years old in North America. And he said, you know, these points that were used to kill mammoths look a whole lot like Salutrian points from people who lived in Spain and France about 17,000 years ago who also killed mammoths. And so his theory was that they, during the Ice Age, they were able to travel along the verge of the ice in boats from Europe to North America. And in fact, this is still a viable theory. And, but, you know, it's very controversial, of course, because it's just really controversial. Right. It, one of the ideas is that the Europeans might have been first, and then the, then the ancestors of the Native Americans or Asians came later mm. and exterminated the Europeans. Well, that's a very controversial idea. And in no way has that been proven. Right. But even to advance that idea might be is controversial in some quarters. Yeah, no doubt. And we've had guests on this show from tribes. We've had guests on this show who are archaeologists. And it is interesting to hear where the two sides differ. But what I found really inspiring and in a way relieving was the thoughts that you shared by the gentleman who was a part of the the repatriation group that was associated with the nation the native americans i'm not sure which tribe maybe the chumash but he had some thoughts that he shared on this topic and what i found really interesting was that he said that our ancestors knew there were white people here we didn't always look like this and i think that speaks to the the his larger point and maybe i'm just reading into this but I think it speaks to a larger point that we're all human beings. Native Americans are human beings. We're all one human race. And when the, you know, 19th century era of putting Native Americans on display as museum pieces rolled around, I think that left a lot of Native Americans feeling like, you know, our history is being mocked. And in an effort to fight that, they've completely shut out any you know 
at least in this case, I, I'm not speaking for every indigenous person. They're certainly not all connected either. But I understand the apathy towards archaeology, given, you know, how they've been depicted in history, maybe not so recently. But still, you know, I think there's a, a kind of a might be disappointing to learn that the Kennewick man got put back in the ground, but I, I think it is reassuring to hear that little kernel of, of acknowledgement from the, the Native American saying, you know, yeah, we knew there were white people here back in the day, but we're still not going to let you desecrate our ancestors because just because he's white, it doesn't mean he's not our ancestor. We're all, and I felt like that was the larger message I got from that. Did you sort of gleam that from that as well? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I did, you know, the, the, of course, the Native Americans, you know, several of the pieces in the Lost Tomb deal with the, the repatriation of Native American remains. And when I was speaking to one Native American, I said, you know, you know, the, the, the Europeans came to North America and they stole our land and then they stole our dead and put them in museums. And I mean, that's a powerful argument. And when you look at the history of, how Native American dead were treated, it's really shocking. I mean, for example, army surgeons in the 19th century, after a battle with the Plains Indians, when there were a number of dead lying on the field who were Native American, they would go in and cut the heads off the slain warriors and ship them back to the Smithsonian for scientific study. And so the Smithsonian had a whole collection of heads of decapitated Native Americans. And then many anthropologists, they went and desecrated Native American graves. I mean, I used to work at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and the attic in the museum was full of Native American burials that had just been found in the American Southwest, Mummy Cave in Arizona and other areas, and just completely looted. Everything was taken loaded into railroad cars, brought back to New York and stuffed in storage. And without any regard to the feelings or the religious beliefs of the people whose, whose, whose ancestors these were. And I mean, that's just really horrifically offensive on every level. And they, the early anthropologists justified it by saying, well, this is for science. Science should trump people's religious beliefs. But, you know, those same people wouldn't want their grandmothers to be dug up and, and manhandled and, and put into a museum storage room. Right. So there was a real double standard there. There was definitely a racist thing going on there. Yeah. But, you know, we passed, our country passed the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, and it, you know, addressed these concerns. So now... You know, when Native American remains are discovered, the tribe that they probably belong to get a say or are able to, to re reclaim those bones and rebury them right. and deny scientists the ability to study them. And there's still controversy about that because those bones might yield a lot of important information, but at the same time, you know, at what cost? Well, and that's well said, and it expresses this double-edged sword really well. You know, the, the history and, and the, you know, damage that's been done, we don't want to 
prolong that, but also there's valuable information lying in the ground. So yeah, it, it is definitely something that is tough. Well, maybe we shift gears a little bit. Roman, I've been talking a lot. You're over there being very polite and, and quiet. Do you have any questions, my friend? Any any thoughts so far? Give him a moment to to get ready. I asked him to mute himself because I heard too many roosters in the background over there in Hawaii. He is in a green, <laughs> abundant place. There's roosters everywhere. There's pineapples in his backyard. Well, while he's fixing that, maybe we shift gears because I know Roman wanted to bring up the Oak Island mystery. And I'm curious, given the theme of this book, how many people are buried in at Oak Island and is it only people who died looking for the treasure or are there other people buried at Oak Island? Well, you know, six people were killed in that treasure hunt over the last 200 years. And that's a really fascinating story. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it. There is a, a show on discovery on the discovery channel about it. And, but you know, this is a, a treasure mystery going back 200 years and maybe the, the most famous certainly the most enigmatic buried treasure story in 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 the world but about 200 years ago some kids in nova scotia rode out to this island called oka island to explore and they found an interesting tableau they found a clearing in the middle of the island and in the middle of the clearing was an old, old oak tree with a branch that stuck out, and there were rope burns on the branch, and some claim there was a block and tackle hang, hand, hanging from the branch. And then the ground underneath had, had subsided into a depression. So the kids thought, oh, buried pirate treasure, because this area of Nova Scotia is known to be a pirate hangout. So they started digging, and immediately they, they made discoveries. They found a platform of oak logs, and they, dug, they pulled them up and dug further. They found a, a layer of clay, and then they found a layer of fiber that turned out to be coconut fiber, which, of course, mm -hmm. there are no coconuts growing in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. They finally got, and they realized they were digging in a backfilled shaft. They got down to 30 feet, and they gave up. But one of those boys grew up, and he organized a treasure hunting company, and they came back, and they continued digging, and when they got to the night, and they continued hitting these platforms, and when they got to the 90-foot level, uh, they found a stone engraved with mysterious, mysterious characters. They pulled that stone up, and apparently they seemed to have triggered a booby trap. Because all of a sudden, this 90-foot shaft filled up with water, seawater, salt water. And, you know, all the way back up to the level of the ocean. And so then they gave up. But since that time, treasure hunting company after treasure hunting company have gone to the island. And they've dug side shafts. But whenever they get close to the main shaft, fills up with water. They found these flood tunnels that were built as booby traps, essentially, so, so that to bring the flood water into the pit. 
they actually did tests where they threw dye into the pit, into the water, and then pumped water into it. And they found this dye coming out on both sides of the island. So there were tunnels leading from both sides of the island into the pit. Whoa. And they so disturbed the ground that the entire surface of this part of the island became unstable and dangerous. And in fact, some claim that they really lost the location of the original pit, although they, there is a place there that they claim is the pit, but for some who say that's not the real pit. So I went up to Oak Island to find out. I was really curious about this as a journalist, so I went up there to find out what's going on. And there's a treasure hunting company up there called Triton Alliance, and they had dug a shaft near the money pit. They had broken into a cavern 200 feet deep it was flooded, and they claimed to have seen a hand, human hand, floating in the water with a bone sticking out. <laughs> they couldn't get a picture of it because they brought lowered a camera. When they turned the camera to take a picture of it, it bumped the hand, and the hand was pushed off, and they couldn't find it again. But they did take pictures that they claimed were of chests, of skeletons chained to the wall, of pickaxes and all kinds of stuff. I've seen those pictures, and let me just say it takes a lot of imagination to see those things. But anyway, it doesn't disprove it. It's just so anyway. So so I wrote a story about these treasure hunters and what they were doing, and and but you know that mystery remains unsolved. I mean, they're still trying to figure out what's at the bottom of that pit. If what is your imagination? You know, having dug into the mysteries of Oak Island, and there are many assumptions because of that television show. I don't know how many seasons there are. There's quite a few. But what, what have you heard about what is the treasure? Is it gold? Is it is it jewels? I know there's massive amounts of clay pots they found with mercury, like little bits of mercury in it, which is brought to a lot of places for amalgamation and things like that. So <clears throat> what is the story of the treasure? And, and which famous pirate, if any, have you heard about that laid this treasure there? And how deep do these pits go? All really good questions. You know, I think the real treasure of Oak Island, the very clever people who turned it into a TV show, <laughs> I hope they've made millions. Because, but yes, what is this? Well, I did, I did a lot of research into this. And I do have my favorite theory, which I'll tell you. It's not my theory, but it was I, I spoke to a, a historian and a, a maritime engineer at the Smithsonian Institution who was an expert. And he said, look, the carbon dating of, of artifacts brought up in the money pit indicates it was probably built in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And he said there's only one country in the world that could have engineered this pit, and that is the Spanish. Because the Spanish were the world's greatest mining engineers at the time. They had discovered the gold mines of Peru, of Mexico. They were bringing out enormous treasure from those mines in terms of gold and silver bullion. And they probably were the only ones, no pirate could have had the engineering capability to build that pit with its booby traps, the tunnels, the depth of it. It's, it's got to have been the Spanish government. And so why would the Spanish government build a pit on this island in Nova Scotia? And the answer he gave was that 
the treasure fleets regularly went from the New World, from Central America and South America and Mexico to Spain, bringing back the treasure. But sometimes they were caught in these storms, hurricanes, that come up the Atlantic coast. They push these ships and damage them up the coast. And, of course, if you look at hurricane tracks, they have them go out to sea, you know, farther up the coast. So these ships, badly damaged, full of gold, weighed down, would take refuge in Mahone Bay in Nova Scotia and have to unload the gold in order to repair the ships. And sometimes the ships weren't even repairable. So that this money pit became a temporary storage area for billions and billions of dollars of Spanish gold and silver. Mm. Now, the question is, is there still gold and silver down there? And the answer probably is yes, you would think. You know, with all that going on, there's probably something left. Yeah. Um, who knows? <laughs> Fascinating, especially considering that that way to the old world from the new world would have been the second option, right? Because if you're in South America, you'll catch the trade winds across this lower below the equator over to Africa rather than going all the way up the coast and then around Greenland, Iceland, and back down to Europe. But it does seem like a convenient stash spot if you were a European country because it's quite a quick journey to go. You know, it's cold, but it's a quick journey to go past the, you know, UK, Orkney Islands, Iceland, Greenland, and then boom, you're over there in Canada onto your, your treasure spot. That's fascinating. The Portuguese also, although not as, you know, not as powerful maybe as Spain, there were some incredible tunnel systems found in Portuguese, Portugal, these really strange structures that people like Freddie Silva, who's written a couple books on this topic, have speculated that the Templars were building these tunnel systems in Portugal. And I know the Templars, you know, they come up in really any historical mystery and <laughs> surely Oak Island is no different. But yeah, that's where my mind goes when I hear about the Spanish, you know, they, they certainly had these groups operating under the, the guise of, oh yeah, we're, we're Spanish, but really they were maybe Templars or, or something else. So, but great, great point. And I think, uh, you know, when it comes to Oak Island, <laughs> the greatest treasure is the TV show. That's brilliant. I, <laughs> that, that's going to be in the episode title somehow. But <laughs> yeah, very, very well said. Roman, you read the the monkey, the the book about the, the lost city, the monkey god. We don't want to go there just yet, but we do want to make our way down to that region. But... Roman, you had some thoughts while, while we were, before we, we had the misfire, go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Douglas was saying that you live in New Mexico now and, you know, being born in the Northeast from Massachusetts originally, what anchored you into New Mexico? I know in the book of the lost tomb, you have a chapter um, about the cannibals of the Canyon, which is about the Anasazi and this wonderful mystery of Chaco Canyon. I have a great and dear friend who is a master Flint napper. He tans Buffalo hides. He's into like the bushcraft skills. He bought property in New Mexico, right next to Chaco Canyon. Keeps asking me to come to his property and he wants to bring me into the Canyon. I can't wait to do it. And I am so, I'm so enthralled by the ancient mysteries and this being one of the flood points from South America 
you know, quotations into the boundaries, right, of our modern eyes into North America, this being one of these major kind of like ancient highways. And so I was hoping that you could tell me why you live in New Mexico, what excites you about New Mexico, Chaco Canyon, what have you found? There's so much there. I, I just want to know your thoughts, feelings, opinions, emotions, and, and what you found really exciting about New Mexico. Well, I grew up in New England, and I really wanted to get out of New England. <laughs> and I went to college in uh, Kenya, um, in L.A., but that was, didn't like L.A. either. But I moved to New York, and then I decided to try to make it as a writer full-time, and I looked around for a place to live and picked Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I, when I arrived here, I realized this is a place I want to I wanna be. I love this town. It's beautiful it's a small town it's a it's, you know it's just it's in every way a, a really fantastic place but i one of the great things about santa fe is the layers of history you know santa fe is the oldest town in the country established in 1598 by don juan de Añate. we've got the oldest a capital building oldest building in in dating back to 1610, the Palace of the Governors. So there's all this history, and of course there's the Native American history going back many thousands of years. But I came across this story, you know, I was fascinated, as you are, with Chaco Canyon. And this, for those of you who don't aren't familiar with this, it's in, in the middle of New Mexico, in one of the most remote, windswept and desert areas of New Mexico is this gigantic settlement of enormous, beautiful stone buildings, the largest of which is Pueblo Benito, which actually was the largest stone, the largest building in North America outside of Mexico until uh, the late 19th century. It is huge, many thousands of rooms, and it covers a number of acres. So there's always been a huge mystery as to who were these people, why did they build this enormous area with these huge buildings, and what happened to them, and where did they go? And so this has been intensively studied by uh, archaeologists for, for ever since these, ever since Europe, Americans first saw these buildings in the 1850s. Uh, there was an expedition that came across them, and everyone was amazed. And so a certain picture developed of a, of a society, of Native, a Native American society, that this was a, a large ceremonial center for their religion that brought all these diverse groups living in the Four Corners area, living in an area maybe almost 100,000 square miles, would bring them together in beautiful religious ceremonies to sort of affirm their community. And their roads, extraordinary roads leading from hundreds of miles from distant parts of the Southwest, leading, converging at Chaco Canyon. So this wow. whole vision developed of this mysterious, hugely important organized culture. And then the mystery occurred. There's an archaeologist named Christy Turner who started studying 
bones that had been recovered from many of these great houses, what they call them, in many of these areas around Chaco Canyon. And in microscopically examining these bones, he made a, a terrifying announcement. Oh. He said that these people, um, huge groups of people, were killed, dismembered, their bodies were stripped of the flesh, they were cooked and eaten, and that this was cannibalism. And that there was an enormous outbreak of cannibalism um, around the time the Chaco Canyon was built, and then, which, which continued in, and reached its peak at the time Chaco Canyon collapsed and was abandoned. And this, of course, completely overturned the idea that this was a beautiful culture that was a, where they came together for religious purposes. And so his theory was that maybe Aztecs from Mexico invaded and built this whole system, not as a system of, of celebration and community, but as a system of terror and control. And the cannibalism was used as a means of terror. This was not starvation cannibalism where people are starving and they have to eat, you know, like the Donner Party. This was cannibalism where these bad guys would go into a, a little town and they'd kill everybody in the town, including women and children, cook them, eat them, and then leave their bones out for everyone to see, to show the world what badasses they were and how, how they were really a force to be reckoned with. So it was cannibalism as terrorism. And so Christy Turner went all over the Southwest looking at, at these villages that had previously been excavated, looking at the bones and determining that in something like 15% of the cases, these bones how were the results had been roasted, cooked, eaten, that these were their charnel deposits from enormous cannibal feasts. Wow. So I, I, wrote, I wrote that story. I wrote that up, and it, it really delved into you know, what happened, who these people were, why this might have occurred, um, yeah. and so forth. It brings well, to how, mind— how, oh, oh, go ahead, sir. Real quick, it brings to mind stories we've heard from the Paiutes of this you know, group of— giant-like beings that were cannibals that terrorized different tribes. And this isn't just limited to the Paiutes. There are other tribes that have stories of cannibal giants. But the idea that the Aztec or other groups, possibly from Central or South America, would have you know, waged this terror campaign also fits in with things we've learned. I mean, we've found chocolate as far as up in Wisconsin, right? We know that cocoa and other goods from South America were being traded into North America as far as, you know, the Great Lakes. So clearly there would have been, you know, some exchange of culture going on. Maybe the Aztecs with this monopoly over Central and South America use that, you know, terrorism to keep a stronghold over their trading routes. And yeah, maybe this is a side effect of the the wars they waged to keep control over that trade network. But Roman, you, you had some thoughts? Oh, I was just very curious on how did they determine from the bones themselves that they were, that they were eaten? Was it, was it char marks on the bones or something along those lines? A very good question. These it wasn't just Christy Turner, but there were there were other uh, physical anthropologists involved in this. They looked for six telltale characteristics. 
And I'll go through them because they're quite interesting. Well, the first one is chop marks on the bones that show that they were deliberately, that these individuals were deliberately dismembered at the time of death, you know, especially in the, where the joints are. You know, it's like when you carve a turkey, you go to the joints. So this is where the joints are. So they're chop marks. The second uh, telltale sign is the one of the most nourishing parts of the body are the brains. The brains mm-hmm. are very nourishing. They're full of uh, fat and, and vitamins and things like that. And so the skulls of these victims, they were able to determine had been the face and the, the hair had been stripped off, scraped off, and then the skulls were placed, you know, cranium down, side down in the fire, and the brains were roasted in the skull, and then the skulls were broken open to get at the roasted brains inside. That's the second. The third one was what they call anvil marks, which is when you crack open bones to get the marrow, mm. you, you place one bone or the skull on a rock, and you bring another rock down on top, and it creates scratches on the bones that they call anvil marks. That's another characteristic. And then, of course, there's the charring in the bones, which you mentioned. But the final and most telling characteristic is what they call pot polish. Now, this, in, 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 back in those days, the bones of deer and other animals that were consumed were broken into pieces and placed in uh, clay pots and boiled to get every bit of oil and grease and marrow out of those bones to really extract every bit of nourishment that there were in those bones. And so they put these clay pots on the fire and these broken bones are turning around in the boiling water for hours and the broken ends of the bone get polished by the, the sides of the pot. And they call this pot polish. It's visible not to the naked eye, but it's visible by microscope. And it just proves that the bones were boiled for a long time. And then a final proof of this, and this is a bit strong, I apologize to your listeners, but on the Ute Mountain Indian Reservation, which is right in the Four Corners area, they found one of these villages where there were three kivas, which are the underground ceremonial chambers of the of these Pueblo Indians, where 30 individuals had been killed and cooked and eaten and their bones left out for everyone to see. And then after this cannibal feast, one of the cannibals had defecated on the hearth of this religious kiva as a sign of absolute disrespect. Mm. Um, just a, a, It'd be like doing the same thing in a church, right? It's a sign of absolute disrespect. Well, that, uh, what the, it, the scientific word for that turd was a coprolite. Um, that was recovered by archaeologists. And there was a biochemist who was able to show that the that the, that person had ingested human meat, and that's all that was that he had ingested. It was human protein. 
So it was literally proof of cannibalism. <laughs> wow. Cannibalism had taken place. Because there were also other theories. People said, oh, well, maybe this was a religious thing. Maybe they roasted these bones. They didn't eat them. They just roasted them. They, but when they found this copper light that was entirely composed of, of human flesh, that they realized that was proof that, in fact, cannibalism had occurred. And also the fact that it was that it was done in such a way showed that th- these were a bad people. I mean... Now, we don't want to cast back in time, you know, value judgments. But these were definitely badass people. All right, let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors. We've got the number one way to get lit, and that is with the Hit Kit. You've heard me talk about them many times before. It's an incredibly neat, useful, everyday carry item that you need if you are smoking any sort of weed. Just go over to The Hit Kit on Instagram and check out his great line of products. Garrett is a fan of this show. He's a supporter and he's a small business owner and operator here in the great country of the United States. So go and support him if you're smoking, whether you're smoking weed, whatever you're smoking, a joint, a spliff, a blunt, a cigarette even. Put it in the hit kit. Keep it safe and sound. You can get your own custom designs. There's tons of options and designs to choose from. Uh, But I recommend getting a custom design on there. Depending on how often or how, how much you smoke, you might want to pick a smaller or bigger hit kit there are tons of options so go and check that out today he's also got some rolling stations uh, great for people who have a nice bong or bubbler it just really will upgrade your smoking uh, apparel your your smoking paraphernalia if you will Go and check it out. Use the promo code CRAZY and save at checkout. I love the Hit Kit. I use his products every day. I recently got a new belt clip Hit Kit, which uh, I like. It definitely feels like something an old man would wear. Don't let that discourage you. It's actually super convenient, and you don't have to put it on your belt. Okay, It's got that classic belt clip. I was clipping it to the inside of my jacket the other day, which seemed to work for a little bit. So yeah, you got tons of options with the Hit Kit. Uh, Go and check them out. Use the promo code CRAZY. And now for our Dynamic Ad sponsors, which I have no control over, folks. So if you want an entirely ad-free experience, of course, go and support us now on the Patreon. And we'll get back to this episode right after this quick break. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. I, I think badass is a good term as opposed to bad just just for that that judgment casting because <clears throat> I will say this like in living in Hawaii right like I've, I've learned a lot about the the indigenous cultures here and how they honored and respected bones and a lot of times they would honor some sacred peoples of the of like the powerful people and then eat parts of their body in order to ingest their spirit and their power as an honorable thing. Yeah. Not talked saying about that this was a, a couple times, yeah. Roman, the ritual aspects of cannibalism. I mean, we've even spoken to John Edgar Browning, who studies modern day vampires and, and the, you know, cultural connotations of that. It's, it's something that, again, I, Douglas, you make a great point. You don't want to ascribe our modern connotations or moral judgments onto the past. This was in the ninth century, right? So in other parts of the world, equally grotesque things were going on. I mean, we don't have to get into the whole medieval inquisition, the history of people you know, <laughs> being flogged and ripped apart by horses. And so, yeah, a lot of bad things were going on in that time period in different parts of the world. But it is fascinating, you know, what's left and how much we can learn from this evidence that's left behind. Has there been, and I I don't mean to interject, Roman, if you have more to follow up on the cannibalism aspect, but I I would like to change the subject. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I'm the squeamish one here, but it it occurred to me that Pueblo Benito is shaped like a bow. And it's kind of interesting considering like this war that clearly went on there or, or this battle or just maybe, as you put it, terrorism. I think that's maybe the most accurate way to put it. But is there has there been any effort to try to reconstruct what Pueblo Benito would have looked like when the attack happened, when these people were killed? Well, they, they, they have reconstructed. The Pueblo Benito was built over a, a long time period. They, it started off a lot smaller, and then they added to it, and added more, and added more until it was really became huge. And the fact that it is bow-shaped is certainly significant. That's right. not an accident. Right. Nothing really is an accident. I mean, the alignments and so forth were probably astronomical and everything. So they found at Pueblo Benito, what, the big mystery there is that even though this huge, all these huge great houses exist, there's not a lot of evidence that people live there year-round. It looks like it may have been seasonal, that they all came at one part of the year and they all had their ceremonies, and then they all went back to their where they came from. The one thing about Chaco Canyon is they've never found the burial grounds. I mean, if people died, where are they buried? They can't find it. And those 
burials would really tell us a lot about who lived there and what was happening. Yeah. Um, because most, almost all these terminal sites, these are uh, not at in this central area, but they're at at the other ends of the roads. They're at the far ends of the roads. So, and also on the roads, because along these ancient Chaco roads were great houses, and they found terminal deposits there, but not at Chaco Canyon itself, uh, because they haven't really found a lot of human bones there. So maybe someday they'll find that the burial ground, because you have to believe that there were thousands of people there, even seasonally, if someone died, they're not going to carry that body 100 miles through the hot desert without beasts of burden and without the wheel. Hmm. We're not going to do that. It's going to be buried there somewhere. And so we just, we just haven't found that burial ground. Yeah. Are there, are there major burial sites that we do know of in New Mexico that you've, that you found? Uh, yes, there are some really big ones. Well, the, I think the maybe the biggest one ever found was mummy cave in a Canyon del Muerto in Arizona. Canyon del Muerto, the Canyon of the Dead, was named after this cave. There's a beautiful uh, cliff dwelling there that's magnificent. It's like it's like Mesa Verde. But the cave that it's in goes way, way back, and it narrows down. And as anthropologists in the 19th century were crawling back in there, they suddenly realized that this was a gigantic burial ground Oh, wow. Most of these bodies were not just bones, but they were mummies because of the dryness and the fact that they're way in the back of the cave and the fact that animals hadn't gotten into them. So they literally took out hundreds of these mummies. And they're all, most of them are at the Museum of Natural History in New York, where I used to work. And I've seen these mummies. Many of them are kept in the mummy storage room at the museum. And <laughs> the story of how I discovered this room is sort of funny. You know, I was working in the, at the magazine published by the museum. And one day I came into my office and there was a terrible stench of mothballs combined with a smell of something much worse. It was like bad old beef jerky or something. <laughs> I, I said, what is that stink? What, what's going on? And they said, oh, right on the other side of the wall to your office is an anthropology <laughs> storage room. It's, it's the mummy storage room. It's where they store all the mummies. And once a year, they unseal all the cases of these mummies and they change the chemicals. Because they, these mummy cases have it's sealed, they're sealed, and inside are, are paradichlorobenzene crystals which prevent insects and preserve them. So once a year, they open the cases and they put new chemicals in and they close them up again. And so I said, I got to see this, this, this place, this storage room. So I talked my way in. I was writing a column in the magazine. <laughs> said I was going to write a column about it. And I, it was so interesting. But these mummy bundles from Mummy Cave, many of them were wrapped in beautiful textiles. They were, they were not... Our bodies laid out flat. They were in flex position, so they're kind of in a fetal position, tied up with ropes and then with beautiful blankets wrapped around them. Wow. Just beautiful. Like um, a, a cocoon almost. Wow. 
and, and the fact that these textiles have were however old they were not completely eroded and they were still intact holding these bodies intact at showing that this was a proper mummification process and that the gnosis of mummification was prominent here in new mexico well and, it, and that's right the, the the you know it wasn't mummification like the egyptians where there was that was a much more elaborate process mm-hmm. but it was you know whether they deliberately mummified them or whether it was just a happenstance of the the, the climate is hard to say, but but they're really well preserved, and even the the bodies that they took out of the ground, not in caves, were awfully well preserved. There just is not a lot of decay going on in the deserts of the Southwest. Hmm. Now, what else did you learn from examining some of these mummies? Were there any mummies or or remains in there that revealed things that maybe the museum isn't exactly putting on display? I see here that there's something about the fortress rock mummies. Are those of particular interest? Yes, those that fortress rock was a is a ruin that I've been to in New Mexico. Uh, it's an incredible ruin. It's this giant boulder, I mean huge, the size of many houses, and on top of it is built this ruin. <laughs> and so they found mummies there, but the, the mummy, I mean, the most unforgettable mummy that I've ever seen in my life was in that storage room, and it was actually in a glass case because it had been on display in the 1930s, but they took it off display, and it's never gone back on display. It's controversial. It's called the Copper Man, and it is a perfectly preserved human being who is bright, bright green, the color of turquoise. And his body was found in the Atacama Desert in 1897 in a copper mine. And he was wedged up in this mine. The miners found him. And he was what had happened was he was a prehistoric copper miner, probably from about five thousand years ago, who was mining copper by hand, and he the ceiling shifted just enough to pin him, but not to crush him or break any bones, so he couldn't get out. And he died pressed like that. And the Atacama Desert is one of the driest places on earth, so he wow. died so quickly that he didn't shrivel up. So he was perfectly preserved. You could see his hair. Beautifully braided hair. He had his little uh, leather bag with his stone tools. You could see his fingerprints, his hands, everything. Wow. And uh, so he was taken out of the mine, and he was displayed at the uh, World's Fair in Chicago. I said 1897, but I think it might have been earlier than 18, that. I think 1893. Yeah, 93 was the World's Fair. He was displayed at the World's Fair in Chicago, and he was such a sensation that the crowds were crowded around him so much that they smashed the case he was in. Oh, whoa. J.P. Morgan, the, the millionaire, bought the, the mummy and gave it to the museum, and he was put on display in the museum, and it was a huge attraction for many years. But, but he's the color of this mummy, he was so... Copper, of course, is a preservative, and so he was just perfectly preserved. Just really extraordinary. Can I ask how, I mean, maybe this is a simple question, but so as he was stuck in the wall, dried, obviously long dead, 
the copper formed and took like hold in his physical body and and basically covered his body or or was actually internally a part of his his remains how did that work well it appears that it somehow impermeated his body because what happened was when they, they found when the miner when the miner who had leased the mine from a landowner found the copper man he claimed it for himself but the landowner said no wait a minute that's not copper ore that's a body and that's mine he only leased the copper ore in the mine. So the miner broke the toe off the copper man and had it assayed and found it was 2% copper and said, no, this is not a, a, just a body. This is also copper ore. So wow. there was a lawsuit about it. And the lawsuit went on and on. And eventually, I don't know quite what the solution was, but it was settled in time for that body to be sent to the World's Fair in Chicago. Wow. But, so, yeah, there was impregnated in the body. And recently, the museum took the body and had a CAT scan. And they found out something quite interesting. Because it was, the body was pressed like that, the blood was forced into the extremities, and then it dried there. And so that's why the body never shriveled up. So the inside of the body is hollow. That's so crazy. (laughs) dried and the inside is hollow. Wow. It's like a bell, like a copper bell man. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And, you know, this kind of reminds me of stories we heard of the green man, not that that necessarily connects at all. But <laughs> I imagine if you were someone finding him in the mine in between those two time dates of when he got there and when the mine was bought, it'd be quite an astounding thing to discover and you might even form some sort of uh, folklore about it that oh there's a green man in the cave <laughs> you know i wonder how how often that's happened in in other parts of the world right i mean copper oxidizes and turns green and yeah that's incredible but the atacama desert is a special place recently there was a, a quote-unquote discovery from the atacama desert I, I might be misremembering this but wasn't the the recent mexico hullabaloo to quote-unquote mummies from a desert obviously the, there's some you know the the mummies they talked about were a little i don't know suspect but were they from the atacama desert oh i know what you're you talking about these alien mummies that they yeah, found that the came Mexican out a couple government. months ago yeah yeah that's mm-hmm. that's right those mummies yeah there a lot of mummies have been found in the atacama desert you're quite right there are also mummies that were found in peru at very, very high altitude of that were sacrificed, apparently. I mean, like teenage girls and so forth, taken up to 16,000, 17,000 feet and killed. And then, and because of the high altitude, they were naturally mummified up there and they were apparently sacrifices. But yes, there was one that looked, you can probably Google it and take a look at it, that looked like an alien. It was really bizarre. But they did... I'm not, I may not have the story 100% right. So you could look it up online and find it. But they did, I believe, do a CAT scan of that mummy and found out that it was just a really distorted human being and not an alien. Hmm. But it sure looked weird. Well, and That's- we know that in the ancient world, there were practices of, you know, doing things like binding feet and shaping the head. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not. 
I'm not familiar with the results, so I'm just taking a wild guess here, but who knows? Maybe he was some sort of experiment in the ancient past. Well, that that's for sure. They Yeah, they take babies and bind their heads and create these really long, weird-shaped heads that looked alien. Mm. And I think it's possible. I think you're right about that. I think that mummy might have been one of those misshapen heads. You know, very... And it's interesting because they've now looked at some of those mummies, and they found in them traces of peyote, traces of, of psychedelic drugs, traces of what they think that these were, you know, children who were going to be sacrificed and knew that they were going to die. And so they were very well taken care of and well fed. And then when the time came to to kill them, they were given psychedelic psychoactive drugs to calm them down and to maybe even there was a there's a religious component to it right. um, to help them join the 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 unseen world yeah. beyond mm-hmm. through these psychedelic drugs. Well, so, and it brings a whole new dimension to the stories we hear. I mean, I recently was looking into a book uh, of collections from the conquistadors uh, and their explorations of South America and Central America and at first, you read this stuff and you think, oh, these guys, they must have been exaggerating about human sacrifice and all this stuff they were witnessing. You know, one passage I read said that they were in a temple that had walls lined with human gore. And, you know, this is all in 16th century kind of English, so they're kind of using old <laughs> words to describe it, too. So it, But it was really astounding, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, how true is all this? But... Turns out a lot of this stuff has been found, as we discussed today, you know, remains from these temples, from places where ceremonies were taking place in this really dark context. I, I mean, when, when you look at all this stuff, does it make you wonder about the the culture of the people, you know, committing these dark acts? I mean, you think in their minds they were, you know, working in some sort of spiritual capacity, or do you think it was an example of a society that had become degenerated? No, I think it really was a sincere spiritual and a complex spiritual beliefs. You know, one of the things about anthropology is you're, you're, you're not supposed to judge the activities of other cultures. I mean, it's hard not to do that especially if the cultures are close to our own. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, religion uh, is clearly hardwired into human nature. We're not, we didn't just invent this out of whole cloth. Uh, it's quite clear that in human evolution, uh, those groups that believed in a god or gods that gave them power, that gave them me- gave meaning to their lives, that also protected them against evil and against, you know, being killed in battle and so forth. Now, that's a really powerful system of beliefs that are are going to help your group prevail over a group of others who don't have those beliefs. So that in in our human evolution, as our brains got larger, those groups that adopted religious beliefs, which is, you know, believing in things you can't see, magical thinking and that sort of thing, those groups that adopted those are going to prevail over those groups that haven't 
and gradually working into the genetic gene pool of the human species is a natural gravitation towards religious belief, mm. towards faith, towards attempting. And, and what, what religion was originally was sort of an attempt to understand and control nature. Because life itself is, is unpredictable, it's violent, people die. There are all kinds of questions. Why? Why are there diseases? Why do people die? Why do bad things happen? Why do good things happen? And those questions all can be answered with religion. And so sometimes religion takes a weird turn. It's like, what is the most precious thing in our culture? Well, that's the life, human life. The life of our own children is the most precious thing. And therefore, if we sacrifice the most precious thing that we have, the gods are going to appreciate us more. Hmm. I mean, that's the logic of killing your own children or offering them to sacrifice. Yeah. That's the logic behind it. And that's the logic behind human sacrifice. Right. And, of course, a lot of cannibalism took place in the Aztec in Mexico, prehistoric Mexico, was not, again, it wasn't starvation cannibalism, it was cannibalism for religious purposes. As you pointed out, Roman, it was for, you know, to absorb the power of these people or to erase them completely. Mm -hmm. There are many different reasons, like the foray of New Guinea cannibalized their dearly departed parents um, as a way of incorporating their physicalness into their own bodies. So that was done as a sign of love. So there are all kinds of, this, this is, you know, so yes, religion is, plays a very important role in human history and human society and in human thinking, and it's pretty much hardwired into many of our brains. Well, and again, it goes back to what we said earlier that, you know, we can't, we can't ascribe moral judgments to this stuff because it's so much more complex than merely, oh, that was good or, or that was bad. I mean, <laughs> it's really simplifying things in a reductionist kind of way. And I, I appreciate your depth going into this. But when we look Sincerely. at the, yeah, when we look at the conquistadors and this, this age of exploration, it kind of reminds me at least of when the Romans were, were sort of conquering their neck of the woods and, you know, they would come across the Druids or the different pagan groups and Politically, it was advantageous for them to say, oh, these guys are barbarous. They're brutal. They're killing everyone. We got to eliminate them because Rome is the right way and, you know, yada, yada. And I wonder how much happened of that happened with Spain. And you have all sorts of myriad of stories coming out of that age of discovery, particularly what I think Roman and I are most fascinated in is this prospect of lost cities. And of course, the whole idea of the city of gold, you know, there's, there's El Dorado, but I know that El Dorado is more southwestern right isn't el dorado didn't they think el dorado was somewhere in the southwest united states or or am i mistaking it for something that was in south america well you know it was everywhere that was the thing <laughs> mm. it was started out in south america or central america and then coronado came into the southwestern united states or what would become the southwest the southwest looking for El Dorado, looking for Kavira, the golden city, looking for the seven cities of gold. <laughs> so El Dorado has almost become a mythic 
archetypal uh, thing. You know, it's it's a place that is always out, out of reach, a golden <laughs> city that the Spanish were always looking for but never finding. Although they came close to finding it in in Mexico on Tenochtitlan when they you know when when they realized that Montezuma the emperor had a giant room full of gold <laughs> and Pizarro when he also the, the Inca when the big Peru also you know ransomed the Peruvian emperor for a room full of gold and then killed him anyway yeah and now those were the cultures that were here when the conquistadors were uh, around but now with lidar imaging and things like that we're finding the you know there may have been entire civilizations here before the known groups like the inca and the aztecs that maybe the inca and the aztecs had forgot about or had some vague memory of them in in their ancient past uh, Roman, you, you're a little bit more familiar with this than me because I, I just got the book a couple of days ago. I haven't had a chance to fully read through it, but walk us through this, The the Lost City of the Monkey God. I know this was a book that you came out with a, a couple of years ago, but I imagine you were taken with this idea of the potential for there to be a lost city. How'd you, how'd you get into that venture? Well, that's really a crazy story because it's hard yes. to think that a, a lost city could still be found somewhere on the surface of the earth in the 21st century. But that's exactly what happened. And it was found using this powerful new technology called LIDAR. And I was you know, part of this expedition from the beginning. There's a certain regions of Honduras and, Nicar- and Nicaragua and, and that are uh, still scientifically unexplored, where some of the thickest jungle is placed on top of these enormously rugged mountains. And in the interior of these mountains are valleys that have never been scientifically explored. And in one of these valleys, this fellow by the name of Steve Elkins was felt that there was something in this valley, and he what he started in the 1990s at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, uh, looking at satellite imagery and radar imagery of this of this particular valley, and he he and the scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory thought that they could see the outlines of something in this valley buried in the jungle. But it's it's impossible to get to this valley. I mean, on the ground, just about impossible in Honduras. So years went by, and finally in 2012, Steve Elkins raised a million dollars and brought down an airplane which had its guts taken out, and inside the plane was a machine, a LIDAR machine, which could look through the jungle canopy below and map the ground. And so for three days back uh, a few years ago, they flew this plane over this unexplored valley and the images came back and oh my god there was a city of pyramids terracing roads canals you know building platforms unbelievable a lost city covering hundreds of acres ground and so then a few years after that uh, i was part of an expedition a joint American, British, and Honduran expedition 
to this valley to look at this city on the ground. And we flew in with by helicopters. We dropped some SAS soldiers and cleared out a landing zone. We landed um, and we went into the lost city. And it was amazing. Well, first of all, it was very disappointing because the jungle was so thick you couldn't see anything. I mean, literally, literally, you'd be standing 15 feet from the base of the pyramid and you could not see it, <laughs> you could not know it was there. And even when you hiked up to the top of the pyramid, there were trees growing out of the top that were 150 feet high, 100 feet high, just huge, huge jungle trees. But we made amazing discoveries. At the foot of the pyramid, we found this cache of stone sculptures, just the heads of which were poking out of the ground. God, that was such an amazing discovery. Because we'd walk past it multiple times and hadn't seen it. And finally, someone said, hey, hey, you guys, there's this weird stones over here. And so we rushed over. And the first thing I saw was a jaguar head carved, thrusting out of the ground, snarling. It was like, holy shit, look at that. Jesus, there's a whole statue <laughs> down there. And, you know, eventually there were more than 500 of these stone statues that were recovered from that site. But anyway, it was a fascinating discovery. Let, let me let me just give the audience like a little bit of a background to this expedition that you went on, because it's no small feat by any means. This book, I just want to I just want to give this t- context a little bit for anybody interested in the ancient mysteries and to, you know, the central South American it, cultures that were just enthralled in building massive structures the most pyramids that exist in the world okay more than egypt more than anywhere else exist in central and south america and you douglas were a part of an expedition that was groundbreaking world-breaking and fascinating as all get out and it you lay it out in this book just beautifully, right? You give a lot of chapters of context of people that have like that that were lying to the American public for years because they said they found this mysterious city of the monkey god, but they were just looking for gold. They came back and they were they had to make up an elaborate story when they were dirty, filthy liars. Then there's people honest, great people like yourself who actually went and did the work that they said that they did almost like a hundred years prior or something like that. And then I was also reminded again in your book about the United Fruit Company, which was a blasphemous thing that happened. Unfortunately, you know, with the, you know, the, the oil barons and all these things, creating the trains, destroying rainforest and exploiting the people, creating civil war an incredible thing to look at. Thank you again for putting that in your book because it is an incredibly important part of history to remember that, you know, we have exploited the earth and her resources for many, many years for the sake of money. Besides the points, um, this, I have one quote from your book that I just wanted to read really quick. It was one of my favorite ones. Um, It says it says here we were flying above a primeval Eden looking for a lost city using advanced technology to shoot billions of laser beams into a jungle that no human beings had entered for perhaps 500 years. A 21st century assault on an ancient mystery. 
talking about the lasers are the LIDAR. Is this the first LIDAR that was used in in an expedition in South and Central America? Or were there a LIDAR before, but no expeditions had been had been followed through with? Well, LIDAR had been used to map known ruins. First of all, LIDAR was very new. So this was, it was, you know, very much a cutting edge technology. But it had been used to map known ruins. But in this instance, it was the first time it was used to actually find something new. You know, LIDARing a huge area of jungle without any guarantee that there was anything in there, that was something that had not been done before. And it was quite controversial. The, the LIDAR scientists were saying, well, you know, we're not sure this is a good idea because... You know, how do we know? You may not find anything. Millions of dollars might be spent, and you won't have anything to show for it. But they did it. We were able to persuade them to do it. Of course, we had financing for it that they didn't pay for it. <laughs> and, of course, it paid off. I mean, you I will never forget when the images came back. What happened was we were in Honduras. plane was taking off from Roatan Island, flying inland to the country, you know, mapping for seven or eight hours flying around and mapping and then coming back out. And then the data was being uploaded to Houston, to the University of Houston, where it was then being processed and then downloaded back to us. But the internet connections were slow, so it took all night to upload it, the processing, and so we didn't get the results until the next morning. But I remember one of the LiDAR engineers bursting out of his 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 shack where he was staying saying oh my god oh my god there's something in the valley and we were like what what is it what is it and he said i, I i'm not going to say anything i just can't say anything more i i, I don't want to i just just you got to come look for yourself so we all rushed into his room and there on his laptop was this city it was what an amazing moment that was wow that is fascinating. And you were with some incredible. Oh, you were with some incredible archaeologists, some discoverers, some adventurers, right? Like you have here. I mean, Steve Elkins is I mean, I'm sure you created a life lifelong friend once you started working with Steve Elkins. Yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy. He's quite a uh, an explorer. I mean, he's someone who really he had been he had this rumors of this city the White City, the Lost City, the Monkey God, stretch all the way back to the days of Cortez. When he heard from, when he was sailing his ship after conquering the Aztec Empire, he was sailing his ship off the coast of Honduras, and he heard from people on the coast that, oh, there are great cities, there's a great city inland, uh, many cities, a very wealthy civilization, and probably talking about the Maya or this city, you know, and Cortez was never able to go and explore, but later many explorers went into that area looking for the city, and as you pointed out, some of them were real con men. Uh, there was this fellow named Theodore Board who, who went in claiming to be looking, he was hired, he managed to get himself hired by the Museum of the American Indian to go in there in the night, in early, around 1940, to look for the lost city of the monkey god. And he got financing from the museum, and he had a partner that he enlisted, who was a geologist. And they went in to this unmapped 
unexplored part of Honduras. And they're gone for six months and came back out claiming to have found the lost city of the monkey god. But I was able to get my hands on his journal, which, which had been kept under wraps for, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90 years. And it turned out that was completely false, that he was actually not looking for a lost city, but he was looking for gold. There were rumors, and there always have been rumors, of huge gold deposits along the Patuka River and its tributaries. And that's what he went looking for. And guess what? He found it. He found gold, placer gold, major deposits. And he, and he spent his whole time mining gold <laughs> until he was washed out by the rainy season. And where did he get all these beautiful artifacts that he claimed was from the lost city? Well, he picked them up on the coast from artifact diggers, you know, amateur artifact diggers who've been digging in the jungle and finding stuff. He brought it all back and, and claimed he had found the lost city of the monkey god. But then he refused to reveal where it was located because... He said he didn't want leaders to loot it. And then World War II occurred, and then he committed suicide. And so the location of this lost city was never revealed. But when I got my hands on his journal, I was able to map what he, you know, because he had kept very detailed notes, able to map where he was. And I was able to map right down to this gold site. And God knows that gold is still there. There's not been any gold mining in that area that I know of. So you, so, and there's a story of his staff, right? He had all these journals and there was no notes of the, the monkey God, the city of the white city at all until like this one page on the back of a, one of the journals. But then he have a, like a staff where he had like some coordinates or something like carved into it and it's still handed down in his family somewhere. Yes. Yes. That was so fascinating. He had a, he carried the staff with him. It was obviously of, prime, of paramount importance to him. And it had carved in it in columns, these numbers. And naturally, people said, well, these are numbers that indicate where, you know, distances and directions that indicate where the lost city was. But after I found the journal and realized that the real discovery that he made was not of a lost city, but of a very rich placard of gold deposits. I realized, oh, what's on this, this staff are probably directions to the gold. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I actually got out the maps and, and found out where that valley was, where he was along the river. It was a tributary of the, it was a tributary of a tributary of the Patuka River, and I know where it is. I mean, but, you know, am I going to tell anybody? No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> involved in that. Some Find it on your own. <laughs> well, so were well, the maps or the journals used for uh, your guys' expedition at all? Or did you use any of his coordinates to help you try to find where you later LIDAR'd, where T1 through T3 were? Well, actually, I found those journals long after our expedition in the Lyon oh. project. What happened was, when I was writing my book, after all this was done and we found the lost city and everything else, um, I was talking to there's, so Theodore Moore, after he committed suicide, he didn't have any children, his property went to his nephew. 
and his nephew got these journals. And his nephew, obviously reading the journals, realized that this whole thing was a fraud. So he never showed the journals to anybody. And his nephew got to be in his 70s, and then he was arrested and imprisoned for a, a most heinous crime. And the journals then went, were people who were going through his stuff, his family was going through his stuff and found these journals and said, oh, look at these interesting journals. Who's interested in these journals? And I said, well, I am. And so I got you know, scanned, beautifully scanned copies of these journals, very clear, beautiful wow. stuff, and read them. And I couldn't believe my eyes when I was reading this stuff. Because I thought everyone thinks that Theodore Moore had found a lost city. There are even books about it. There's a book called Jungle Land, where the author of that book tried to retrace Theodore Moore's route to find the lost city and all the rest of it. I read this journal and I was like, man, this guy was after gold. And he found gold. And he was talking about where, where we're going to build the airport, where we're going to build the mill, the stamp mill, and all this other stuff to mine the gold. And, and, and he had huge plans. And then World War II happened. And at the end of World War II, he, I don't know what was wrong with him, but he, he, he eventually committed suicide. Wow. Wow. Very odd. Now, I'm, I'm sure he's not the only person that's gone into the forest and claimed to have found something spectacular in, in an attempt to con museums or whoever invests <laughs> out of money. Were there others that you've traced to, to similar ends? Well, there was another guy who actually lived, lived, lived in my hometown, um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. His name was Sam Glassmeyer. And he was a geologist, a very, very uh, accomplished geologist. And back in the early 50s, he was the one who identified the Dysart Hole Number 1, which was the, one of the greatest uranium strikes in, in American history, hmm. in Grants, New Mexico. So he was, he was a really accomplished geologist. So he was hired in the late 1950s. He was hired secretly by these companies to go into Honduras to look for gold. Because there's, a, there's definitely, in this area of Honduras, there is gold. I mean, we're talking about serious gold deposits, maybe like what was found in California in 1848, 49. I mean, we're, we're talking about serious gold. So he uh, was sent in secretly a number of expeditions into the jungle to find this gold. And he did find, he did find gold deposits. But while he was in the jungle, he heard from natives that he'd hired for his various you know, expeditions, all these stories about this lost city, this white city, La Ciudad Blanca, the lost city of the monkey god. And he got so he was like the opposite of Theodore Moore. Here's a guy looking for gold, but he decided to look for the lost city. And so he, he, talking to these natives, they said, "Okay, we're going to uh, take." They gave him directions, and so he took time off from his gold hunting and went and looked for this lost city. And you know, he found a really important archaeological site. It was not the lost city of the monkey god, 
but it was a very important site, and he brought back some incredible artifacts. And he also brought back a, a ton of gold. And I've, I'm, I'm friends with his descendants, and his daughter, I guess, maybe his daughter-in-law, a granddaughter-in-law, has a necklace that is the coolest necklace ever made. It's a necklace of big gold nuggets that he found, hundreds of them. You drilled out a hole in each one and strung it into this huge necklace that weighs, I mean, it weighs, it's very heavy, let's put it that way. Yeah. But beautiful, all these little gold nuggets. It's really cool. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So, and maybe, is there more to the site that he discovered accidentally? It, well, that's that's the thing that is really interesting. The, he drew a map. I have a copy of the map. Hand-drawn, but very accurate because he was a geologist. And, was, and it appears he, he was the first one to find a site that was then later discovered by, by archaeologists in the 1970s or 80s uh, that is really well-known in Honduras now. It's considered to be one of the most important archaeological sites outside of, of uh, the Mayan area of Honduras. Because, okay. of course, the Copan is in Honduras. That's a really important site. But this site is, is along the Rio Anair, and it's, it's a really beautiful, big ruin. Quite interesting, quite fascinating. Built by the same culture that built the city that we found. Mm. But the city that we found is, is much bigger. Wow. Now, in this city you found is completely overgrown by jungle, right? It, are there any monkey god statues, or is that completely, you know, fable? There are monkey god gods carvings, not statues. The they found these in this cache of artifacts that I mentioned to you at the base of the pyramid, they found these giant stone urns, beautifully carved stone urns that weigh a, a ton. And on the rim of some of these urns are carvings of monkeys, of humanoid-like monkeys. The archaeologists call them aliens because they, they're like half human, half monkey. And the some of them have are obscene. They have giant erections. You know, for example, mm-hmm. what does this mean? Well, who knows what they mean? There's speculation that it's possible that these were bound captives that were going to be taken to sacrifice, or that they're monkeys that were sort of half monkey, half human, sort mm-hmm. of shamans who took psychedelic drugs to take on the spirit of an animal, and that these were shamans who were taking on the spirit of monkeys. Because the forest that we were in, was filled with monkeys. They were, they were all over the place, and so so. But so, no giant statues of monkeys, but lots of little monkeys. Did, right. did these like specific carvings after you guys found them brought them back? And I'm sure they got brought into a university. Are there names of these specific items that we can look up online to kind of see these these glyphs and and peruse them ourselves? Yeah, I think I think there are images. Well, we had a National Geographic photographer with us on the expedition who took a bunch of photographs, and I think those can be found online. Not that many photographs, but enough. There was a dis- All these objects are in the National Museum now in, in Honduras and Tegucigalpa, 
But we had a display at the American Embassy of them, and I think there are photographs from that. I have a bunch of my own photographs that I took of them in the ground, although that's hard to see them because only the heads are coming up, and it was pouring rain at the time. But yeah, if, if, if you Google uh, Lost City, uh, Honduras, uh, statues, monkey god, a jaguar statue, whatever, you'll see see images will come up. There, a lot of these were matadis images, and these matadis are kind of mysterious. They're chairs, stone chairs, like thrones, with animal heads and tails on them and animal legs. And they were believed to be a seats of shamanistic power. So that a shaman, like for example, there's ones of the jaguar head that's really beautiful, really spectacular, that a shaman would take a psychedelic drugs and transform himself into a jaguar. He'd become what the archaeologists call a weird jaguar. It's like a werewolf, mm-hmm. a weird jaguar. So he'd be a human who's turned into a jaguar, and he's on this seat of power. You take on the power of the animal. It's a very powerful animal. And through that, he was able to connect to the spirit world of this animal, and that would be very important for the people to hear, you know, to be able to connect to that spirit world. And there were an awful lot of sculptures of vultures, and apparently they think that the vulture was sort of believed to be an animal that was a bridge between the the world of the dead and the world of the living, because, of course, a vulture gorged itself on dead flesh, Mm. but then it flew way up in the sky and disappeared. And so Mm. that was a symbol of both life and death. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've learned some stuff about vultures recently. You could feed a vulture anthrax, and it it will excrement completely sterile it's it's shit is completely sterile in other words and wow well Doug, this has been uh about two hours we're about at the end of our uh, allotted time here but we'd love to have you back sometime in the future uh before we go is there any plans for something uh coming out next obviously your book the lost tomb is available on amazon in all formats audiobook even uh kindle and uh, paperback, but um, yeah, I, I will link that in the description. I highly recommend folks pick up the book because there's still so much more left to talk about. But uh, what's next? What are you, you planning on doing next? Well, I I've got a novel coming out uh, called Extinction, which is coming out on April 23rd, and it uh, it's a it's about the very real effort to de-extinct or resurrect the woolly mammoth and other large Pleistocene megafauna. And uh, it's a thriller. It's about how these mm. efforts on awry or go awry in the book, in the novel. So it's a, it's, it's a thriller. Wow, right on. We'll look forward forward to to that, that. and we'll link your website in the description for the folks who, for whatever reason, don't check that. Could you tell us where folks can go to follow up on your work, your website, and all that? Yeah, I have a red website that I share with my writing partner, and we write some novels together. It's called uh, www.prestonchild.com. Wonderful. And you can read all about this book, other books, um, all kinds of weird stuff at this website. <laughs> so have fun. Right cool. on. 
<laughs> right on. Well, thank you so much for being here. And we really appreciate the uh, walk through your amazing new book. And I hope that the audience picks it up. There's so much more to find uh, in these articles and updated information uh, from recently, you know, uh, amendments to certain things. I really loved it. It's a great addition to my collection. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Roman, you're the best. Thanks for being the co-host on this one. And until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right. And that was just a portion of this conversation with Douglas Preston. Not only is there more of the interview, but Roman and I recorded an extended outro where we went even further with the material diving into douglas's books uh, the lost tomb and the lost city of the monkey god so make sure you support the show today sign up for just five dollars on patreon and you get the entire episode plus the entire catalog of my family thinks some crazy episodes and bonus content like the weekly show I do with my friend Juan from the one-on-one podcast, all of that and so much more ad free. Of course, no ads at all. Not even our sponsors are excellent, amazing sponsors like the hit kit and Oregonite Oregonite. Big shout out to them. Big shout out to all of you who take the plunge into the Patreon for just $5. You can help this little podcast grow into something amazing. And I really believe that this show is going to be as big, if not bigger, than Joe Rogan or whatever podcast you listen to. It's the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast for the win all the way through 2024. Here we go. So folks, I hope that pumps you up and motivates you for your 2024, knowing that this show is going full steam ahead with your support. So sign up on the Patreon today. So to continue listening to this episode, sign up on the Patreon right now. The link is in the description. No matter what app you're listening to, go down, click it, go over to the Patreon, sign up, and continue listening to this episode. Until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC Broadcast in the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling i'm astral traveling through the library of the vatican on a sacred journey i embark with the squad forever spitting truth like mark on the pod gotta know the facts never hold back because i ain't getting caught up in the soul trap i dissect the fabric of reality looking for the answers searching through the galaxy you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the 
ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders. Must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head. Monkeys with reptilian faces. Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden the wall flickers away. Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My getaway. I run to the nearest one. See a guard knock him out. Robbing for his plasma gun. Hop in the ship. Take the controls. They highly intuitive. I figure it out easily. Lift off. Accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light. Fly into the sky. Get flanked by six F-35s. Gotta know facts. Never hold back. Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap. I dissect the fabric of reality. Looking for the answers. Searching through the galaxy. You might be feeling stressed out. Depression, anxiety, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.